Mark chapter 1, I'm going to pray, we'll jump in. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes to your word, we need your help, we need your wisdom. God, I need your strength, your ability to be able to open your word well. God, that this would not just be merely about me communicating information that I've accumulated, but God, what we don't want is we don't want Bible study. We don't want just merely a lecture. God, we want to be changed. We don't want just simply passing on information from pastor to hearer. God, we want to be transformed by your word. We want to be new people. We want to see things differently. We want to love people in a different way. We want to learn how to forgive and pray and serve the way you, Jesus, love and pray and forgive and serve. God, for that, we need your help. We need your deliverance. We need your power. So, God, we just humble ourselves before you, and we ask that you would just do the work in our hearts that you desire to do in each one of us. And we uh, would pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Mark is a gospel that we've been looking at. There's four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Mark is the second. Actually, it's typically believed that Mark was actually the very first gospel that was ever written. And Mark writes in a way that's very short and concise and very punchy. And he uses these uh, sort of uh, very uh, short, little, concise um, vignettes, little stories that have a lot of meaning and purpose in each one of these little stories. And so Mark writes in such a way where he wants us to kind of keep track. He actually uses the word immediately. In fact, the text that we're going to be looking at here today, he uses the word immediately at least three to four times. So he keeps going on this track, and he'll come to one little section, one little paragraph, and he'll say, immediately Jesus was here. And then he'll finish that little train of thought, and then he'll say, immediately Jesus did this. And Mark keeps the storyline going very quickly because Mark has an agenda, and the agenda that Mark is really wanting to establish First and foremost, at the outside of the book, is, is he wants us to connect the fact that Jesus is not just any mere guy. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an, a, a good, well-known itinerant preacher uh, passing around the seashores of Galilee. He actually is God himself. And that as being God, he actually is a king. It's one of the reasons why Mark starts out the entire book by saying, uh, this is the good news of the of the story of Jesus the Christ. Now, we started from the very beginning. The word Christ is actually equivalent to a Hebrew knowledge or understanding of a king. I know for a lot of us, we can become very, or I should say maybe even over-familiar with certain terms. So when we think of the word Jesus Christ, we typically think of Jesus' first name, Christ is his last name. So for us, the concept of Christ is sort of devoid of any meaning. In fact, it would maybe even be a little bit better for you if you read your Bible, as you read your Bible, anytime you see the word Christ, just supplement the word king. It's probably a better way to understand your Bible. So every time you see the word Christ, just think king. It's Jesus the king. Jesus the king, Jesus the king, rose again from the dead. Jesus the king, conquered, vanquished our enemies. Jesus the king, died for our sin. Every time you see the word Christ, uh, just think king. That's who Jesus is. Mark wants us to understand that he is a king, but he's unlike any other king. And what Mark wants to do is he wants for us to wrap our minds around this. And I think the audience to whom Mark was uh, writing to were far more familiar with this idea of king than we are. In fact, kind of as I was thinking about this and uh, planning and preparing for this message, uh, and just even the past few messages, when we talk about the word king, we really just don't have much of a context for king. Because when I think of king, um, I don't even, honestly, I don't even really know what I think of. I might think of like a monarchy, like from England, but there's really not even a king in England right now. There's just a queen. That's about it. 
and uh, we just don't have any context for a king. And so for the most part, when we think of king, probably the closest thing we would come to is like a president. But a president really is, is, a, is a long shot from actually the New, uh, New, New Testament concept of a king. It's very difficult to try to bridge the gap between a president and a king. Because for the most part, a king was somebody that ruled with great authority. Think more so like Saddam Hussein. All right. So again, I know none of you ever knew him personally, probably, uh, or Gaddafi. Like you had no like you know intimate relationships with the guy in terms of being a friend. Both of them are dead right now. But what you know of them is what you've seen through the news, and maybe some of that news has been a little bit spun and skewed and whatnot. We don't really know. But what we do know by the news, based upon the information and stories that we have heard, that those types of kings were what we would describe as despots. They were tyrants. They weren't nice. They weren't good. They didn't build wealth in their kingdom to distribute wealth, wealth throughout their kingdom. They built wealth in their kingdom to build themselves up, to establish themselves, to make and bring about their own security. In other words, it could be said that the type of kingdom that they ruled was built upon oppression. The type of kingdom that they had established was one that was built upon oppressing others or built upon the back of bloodied other people throughout the kingdom. But what Mark wants us to understand is the king that he's going to be talking to us about, Jesus, he's a king that's unlike any other king. He doesn't oppress. He doesn't crush. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't spill blood. This king comes not to oppress, but to be oppressed. It doesn't come to afflict. He comes to be afflicted. This king doesn't come to spill blood. This king comes to have his blood spilled. This king doesn't come to judge his enemies. This king comes, ironically, to be judged by his enemies. It's a different king. It's a powerful king. This is the king that Mark is saying, let's follow his path. Let's see where he's going. Let's watch what he's doing. Because this king... If you know this king, where Mark's going with all of this, he will change you. He will change your life. And that's why Mark starts out this whole gospel. He says, this is such good news that this king can actually radically change your life. But what Mark wants us to understand as he teaches us about this king is that this king actually has a kingdom. And any king that has a kingdom also has authority. And so Mark wants us to kind of begin to ask questions. In fact, there's a handful of questions that we'll take a look at. I think I kind of had written these down that I think Mark wants us to begin to kind of formulate in our minds as we think about who Jesus is. One, I think he wants us to begin to think about, okay, if Jesus is a king, how far does his authority extend? Because every king has authority, right? But how far does this king, Jesus, his authority actually extend? Is it just in Galilee? Is it just in Jerusalem? How far does this king's authority extend? Secondly, uh, really, who or what are the oppressive enemies that this king Jesus will actually conquer? Because if a king has authority, uh, he uses his authority to suppress or to destroy evil and wickedness. Because every king has his enemies. And really, I think finally he wants us to be asking this question, uh, really, how will Jesus actually conquer these enemies? Because every king has a domain, it's called his kingdom, every king has some level of authority. How far is the extent of their authority? Obviously, Gaddafi's was just in his own kingdom, uh, Saddam Hussein was just in Iraq, uh, but the king that Mark's trying to point out for us, how far did his authority extend? Who were his oppressive enemies? And then finally, how is he going to conquer these oppressive enemies? Those are the questions that Mark gives us these little hints 
that he wants for us to begin to ask these questions as we're reading along the storyline or the narrative about this Jesus. So what I would do right now is I really want to emphasize the fact that what he wants for us to see is that really this king has come to try to overthrow. He's going to destroy these oppressive enemies. But again, the question is, how is he going to do this? In a lot of ways, maybe some of you guys have seen this movie. It's actually one of my favorite movies. It's the movie Gran Torino. You guys seen that? Anybody not see that movie? Okay. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of bad language in it, and it's rated R. So for some of you that are like, you can't watch rated R movies. Uh, it's, it's rated R because it's got a lot of bad language. If you can get past that, the storyline of the movie is, is, I think, amazing. It's one of the best movies. I, one of my favorite movies. The whole story is about, you know, Clint Eastwood. He's a salty old man. He was a, you know, veteran. He hates Asians. Who, he hates Asians. And who lives next door to him? Asians. All right? So the whole storyline is him learning to actually sort of deal with them. Like, learn to like them. But what happens in the storyline is the next door neighbors that are Asians actually have and are being kind of being flirted with uh, these Asian gang or this Asian gang that's trying to destroy them and oppress them and crush them and, dis- and just work them. That's what's happening. And they do so with bullets and guns and all this other type of stuff. But Clint Eastwood lives next door to these guys. So whatever type of invasion of privacy that's coming upon them, next-door neighbors, is also bleeding over into him. So the whole story reaches sort of this climactical point where Clint Eastwood basically says this. One of the, the, the boy next-door neighbor, I think his name is Tao, and he's got a sister named Sue. He says this, Tao and Sue are never going to find peace in this world as long as that gang's around. So the whole storyline is this. Okay, we know the problem. The problem is this oppressive authority uh, taking control and afflicting and oppressing these you know, Asian next-door neighbors. So how, how is this oppressive authority going to be usurped and overcome? So Clint Eastwood becomes sort of this figure in the story that's going to somehow overcome this. So the question all throughout the whole story is, how is he going to do this? Is he going to re- resort to the typical ways Clint Eastwood does throughout the movie? And throughout the movie, he's like I said, he's a salty old man. He's grumpy. He always has guns in his hands and threatening to shoot people. And, you know, these gangs, at one point he comes up and he you know, does this sign where he's going to shoot them. So the question is, how is he going to do it? In other words, the gang oppresses and afflicts by guns. So the question ongoing throughout the movie, is Clint Eastwood going to conquer his oppressors the same way they oppressed? It's a big question. In other words, I think another big looming question that hangs over all this entire movie is, okay, if Clint Eastwood crushes and afflicts his afflictors with the same measures and means that they afflicted and crushed next door neighbor and almost him, is he actually pushing back the darkness or is he actually keeping the darkness in the world? He's never solving the problem of evil. The problem with most of us is that the way that we typically deal with evil, the way that we deal with authorities that are foreign, that are invasive, that are destructive, is we oftentimes rise up with the same level of authority and oppression that came against us. Do you know that? That's how we act. Someone abuses us, we abuse them back. Or if we can't abuse them because we don't have enough power, we find something lesser than us, weaker than us, and we abuse it. So let's say, for example, if uh, dad's abusive to mom, mom doesn't obviously know she can't rise up against dad, so she takes out her abuse upon the children. Children 
oldest child upon the younger child, younger child upon the younger child, youngest child upon the dog, dog upon the cat, cat upon the mouse, mouse upon the cricket, all right? And, and there's just this constant, ongoing, abusive pattern and behavior of this authority. And in reality, evil is never done away with. It's just recycled. It just keeps going on. But Jesus is coming to this world to do away with evil, not to recycle it, not to deal with evil by being evil to evil, but to deal with evil by righteousness. There is no wickedness in God. There is no evil in God. God can't cast out darkness with darkness. That's not how God works. So the bigger issue that Mark is wanting for us to think about and chew on is this larger concept of authority. Authority is a big, scary thing for the most part, because especially in our culture, uh, over the past 15, 20 years, we've seen it abused time and time again, especially more so now that we've got, you know, video cameras. I was watching the news the other night, and they had this big section on the news, you know, with the whole, you know, Occupy Wall Street thing, and it's happened all throughout the, you know, the states and whatnot, big major cities. But the big sort of kickback that's coming out of this, or setback that's coming out of this, are the cops and cell phones. So cops are, you know, doing stuff that maybe they shouldn't be doing, and everybody's got a cell phone. So immediately, every type of abusive action that a cop does against, you know, regular civilians immediately gets posted on YouTube and goes viral. So we as human beings, as Americans, we typically look at authority with skepticism and cynicism. We have this mentality of like, uh, all authority is bad. Everyone who's an authority figure is bad. So therefore, you know, pastors are got to be bad. They've got to be corrupt because they're an authority figure. Or, you know, a, a president must be bad because he's an authority figure. So in other words... There's sort of this connection between just because somebody is an authority figure, that means that they must also be bad. But here's what I want to try to do for you is at least cause you to think about this. Because in reality, authority is just merely an instrument. It's neither bad nor good. It's an instrument. It can be used for wickedness. It can be used for righteousness. How do you know if it's being misused? How do you know if authority is being abused? Well, one of the best, clearest ways to identify if authority is being abused is abused authority always leads to oppression. Properly used authority always leads to liberty. Jesus uses authority. Jesus, Mark wants us to see, is an authority. Is not just an authority, is the authority. And this Jesus comes not to oppress, not to crush, not to afflict, but to set free. Every other authority in this world, every other authority in our hearts, in our lives, seen and unseen, physical and spiritual, perceived and real, afflicts us, oppresses us, binds us. Some of you know exactly what that means. Some of you are oppressed and afflicted by fears. Some of you have been tormented and afflicted by demonic realities. Some of you by mental issues some of you by physical issues what mark wants us to understand is that when jesus shows up the king he sets people free he doesn't oppress he doesn't afflict he doesn't destroy he comes to set people free that's what mark wants us to see there's at least three things that we'll take a look at here today that mark wants us to understand about the authority of jesus the first thing that he wants us to see is that there's verbal authority and this is where he entered in the story mark chapter 1 verse 21 says this and when Jesus went to Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered in the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were all astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
All right, first of all, I want to um, take you guys to Capernaum. I want to show you what this is. I'm going to show you guys some pictures on here. Uh, we'll kind of begin with a big aerial, big picture of this. So obviously this is Israel, uh, and that's the Mediterranean Sea over there, upper left-hand corner, right in the middle over there, over off to the right-hand side, that lake that's called the Lake uh, Galilee, Lake Galilee, um, sea, or the Sea of Tiberias, what do you want to call it. And um, that area in the north is, is Capernaum. Um, actually, kind of a little bit of a geography, geographical lesson. If you were to take the top part of that, I wish I had one of those little red pointer things, and go over a little bit, probably about five, six miles, um, that was an area called the Gadarenes. Maybe some of you are familiar with the story when Jesus said, let's hop on the boat, go to the other side. Um, that area called the Gadarenes is where Jesus goes to the area of the tombs. There's a guy at the tombs, he's all demon-possessed, uh, messed up, freaked out. And, uh, but that, that was an important trek that Jesus took his disciples on because that section of the other side is what would be known as sort of modern-day Jordan or that area today. And back in the day, that was an area that um, was given over to the Gentiles. It was a place that good Jews just didn't go over to. But Jesus says, we're going to go over to the other side, and we're going to do some ministry. So that's Capernaum, uh, Sea of Galilee. Next slide. Um, this is just a little picture on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a, it's a very, uh, fairly large uh, sea. It's, it's very large. In fact, uh, there's parts where you go on the sea that you can look through the cross. You can't see anything to the other side. It's so far um, it's actually just a beautiful, very serene area. Um, I've been there a few times. That little boat right there, we take a boat like that. We go out, spend half a day on there. We sing songs and worship out there. It's super pristine and clean and calm, and it's just absolutely amazing. Then uh, in the evening, we'd sit at this little place called a kibbutz. We'd go swimming in the, uh, in the sea right there. It was great. Um, and this is the area called Capernaum. Okay, next slide. Um, this actually is a synagogue that's still standing in actually the city of Capernaum. Um, in fact, most scholars, mo most archaeologists actually believe that this, this is the exact uh, synagogue uh, that Jesus would have been in. So you guys are going to be reading a story. The story that we're going to be reading about is Jesus teaching in a synagogue. Most uh, scholars believe that this is the exact synagogue. However, it's been updated. There's been additions added to it and so on and so forth. But they believe that this is the exact foundational area that Jesus would have been at the synagogue would have officially uh, stood. And uh, next slide. Uh, this is an aerial view. And if you see the top part, uh, the columns, that is the synagogue that you just saw kind of up close. And then kind of directly across the street, that big thing that looks like a spaceship is actually a Roman Catholic church that was built upon the uh, archaeological site of what was typically identified as St. Peter's house. So actually Peter lived in this area of Capernaum. This is Peter's hometown. It's where Peter grew up. This is where John grew up. So if you can imagine that this whole entire area right here um, was sort of occupied by a bunch of different families maybe at max, maybe 1,500 people. Um, they call this a city in your Bible. However, this would be more like, I don't know, Shandon, all right? Just this tiny little place on the side of the road. You blink and you miss it. And uh, most people were somehow related to each other to some, you know, some degree or another, and that's kind of what they called the city back in this day. So there was a lot of relational elements going on here. And um, so what I want you to notice is that when Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he teaches and preaches there in his synagogue. And then afterwards, he's actually going to go to Peter's house. He's technically just going across the street or just down the street and going into the region where Peter's, uh, actually mother, uh, Peter's house where uh, his mother-in-law lived. And we'll talk about that in a second here. So the first thing that Mark wants us to identify or to understand, uh, is there any other slides after that? No, okay, um, is Jesus' verbal authority. And what we see, first of all, is that Jesus comes into the synagogue, and it was very customary for the Jews first century when they would uh, come, they would gather the, uh, 
um, the, the day of the week called the Sabbath or Shabbat on Saturday. It started Sunday, uh, Friday night at sundown. It would go to Saturday night sundown, and they would basically give that a time for rest, uh, relaxation, and really just uh, focusing upon God, upon God's Word. Families would get together. They would have a nice meal. They would study God's Word. They would meet in the synagogue, very similar to what we would do for the most part um, on Sundays as we gather to worship. And so they would come. Jesus came into this uh, synagogue. Sometimes in rural parts of the, uh, in parts of the country, this was, happens to be one of them. Um, they didn't necessarily have like a full-time pastor or a rabbi that was staffed by the actual um, the sanctuary or the uh, synagogue. They would kind of have itinerant preachers. So if someone was well-versed in the scriptures, uh, whether they were formally trained or whether informally taught, um, and they were you know, a gifted speaker or teacher, they would oftentimes open the scripture. And in this case, it's unique because Jesus actually opens the scripture. And we know for certain, according to the rest of the scriptures, that Jesus was not formally taught. He never went to synagogue uh, and studied under a particular rabbi, per se, but rather that Jesus himself uh, knew the scriptures and knew what was being communicated, knew what God's heart was. And so therefore, Jesus sits down, opens the teaching, uh, opens the scriptures, begins to teach the people, and it says everybody's astonished at this. They'd never heard anybody teach like this. And what typically they were used to was pastors or rabbis that would essentially bore the people. Um, so imagine coming to church, and rather than opening the Bible and teaching the Bible, these guys would comment on the commentators. I mean, they would like make side notes on the side notes of the side notes of ancient rabbis that had been dead for the past 300 years. And basically what would happen is you would go to church and you'd take a nice long nap. And after that, you'd wake up and you'd go eat a dinner. And that was pretty much it. You were bored. And in a lot of ways, that's the way a lot of churches can be. That's in a, for some reason, I mean, if the Bible ever becomes something that's just simply taught and it puts people to sleep, that's really bad. It shouldn't be taught that way. Sometimes fathers can do this. And in other words, when they try to invite their families to be a good leader of the family and to bring uh, the Bible, the Word of God, to their children, they can bore them. Uh, fathers should not bore their kids. Uh, pastors should not bore their congregations. Uh, community group leaders should not bore their community groups. It should be focused on God's Word. It should be living. And when Jesus opened up the Bible, it was alive. It was powerful. It changed people's hearts. It caused people to see and to realize that trusting God actually brought about hope. It brought about change because God is God. He's powerful. He's a good God. He doesn't bore us with a bunch of side notes on side notes and marginal notes on marginal notes on a dead rabbi who's been gone for 300 years. That Jesus comes in the room, opens the Bible, and says, this is what God said. I, I can't even do that. Like, I don't even have that authority. That's not my authority. I can't sit here and say, this is, I mean, I can sit here and, do the best I can say. I think this is what God's saying. Jesus can speak with this final authority. All I can do is I can point to Jesus, who is the final authority. Jesus comes on the scene and says, this is what God said. This is what God meant. Closes the book. Does anybody want to follow, trust, love, serve God? That's, that's what I'm inviting you into. This. That's what Jesus would do. And rather than boring the people, he gave them hope to see that God is a big God. And they were they were amazed by this, and they marveled at the fact that Jesus taught them with this sense of authority. The second thing that Mark wants us to note in this storyline is that Jesus also has spiritual authority. So in other words, if Jesus has verbal authority, I think what he intends for us to see is that when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks, there is something profoundly powerful about that. That they would, he would want people to ask the questions, who speaks like this? 
Who talks about God's word like this that has this type of authority? That's the question that Mark wants us to ask. The answer, of course, is only God. Only God can talk like that. Because locked in that word authority, it's actually the uh, Greek word exesue. Exesuya, it's, the, it's, a, it's a word that also carries or denotes or points back to the larger picture of an author. So authority denotes authorship. So here's Jesus speaking with authority. Mark wants us to you know, make the connection. The reason why Jesus speaks with authority is because he's the author. In other words, what was going on, what was being promoted in the first century that Jesus comes in and makes us radically stark contrast with was not authoritative. It wasn't God. It was binding. It brought oppression. And let me just say this. That's what religion does. That's why I hate religion. I don't like religion. Religion is not good. I mean, all the arguments that Nietzsche and all the other people that have come in the past that were atheists and making their arguments against Christianity, I honestly would have to say that majority of their arguments were right. Conclusions, I think, false. That religion is man-made. Religion is oppressive. Religion is destructive. It's dehumanizing. I think Jesus would agree with that. And I think, honestly, if you understand the gospel, you should agree with that too. That defiled religion, all it does is it oppresses people. That's what Jesus was dealing with. What Jesus was trying to communicate and convey is that his words from God, spoken with authority, give life. The words that come out of the mouths of the religious leaders bind others' consciences. Because that's all that religion can do. So some of you, you know, we live in a culture today that is like, it's just got you to be religious. In fact, we don't even use the word religious anymore. We just say you got to be spiritual. Being spiritual is not enough. That's not okay. Okay, you can walk around and just say, I'm spiritual. It's one of the reasons why Oprah, when she was still on, had a whole segment on just spirit. It doesn't lead to life. It can't lead to life because it's a false spirit. This is one of the reasons why false religions are bad. is because they bind you. They don't free you. They don't set you free. They bind your conscience. They keep you bound. They restrict you from having life, from enjoying life, rather than giving you freedom to live life. This is why religion is bad. But Jesus comes not pushing a new religion, not promoting a new form of religion, but literally saying this is about having a relationship with God, of which I'm the mediator to tell you all about him. How does Jesus know what God is like? Well, John in the New Testament actually tells us the reason why Jesus knows what God's like is because Jesus, A, is God, B, because Jesus was with God. He knows what he's like. He's speaking from firsthand experience, and Jesus basically comes and says, I've come to set you free, not bind you not oppress you, not afflict you, which implies anything that we have ever been involved in or been a part of that's apart from Jesus is by very nature oppressive, abusive, destructive, dehumanizing. And Jesus comes to set us free. The second authority that Mark wants us to see is not only verbal authority, as we just looked at, secondly, is we see spiritual authority. And we see kind of this interesting power encounter where Jesus has this situation with these demons in verse 23. And anytime people talk about demons, you get a range of emotions. Some people are freaked out, like, I don't believe in demons. Others are like, woohoo, let's bind them. Like, and, you know, and, and you, you have this like wide range, all right? And the reality is, no matter whether you're one of the people that 
ignore them and act like they don't exist, or you're kind of along the scale where you're just ready to bind and command and destroy everything. Um, the reality is that they do exist, and the reality is that you don't have any authority except what God's given you. So be careful about what you say, because just like in the book of Acts, there's a group of guys, they're called the seven sons of Sceva. They go out, and they start commanding demons to come out and do things, but they don't do so in the name of Jesus. So what ends up happening is that every one of them, literally in the text, it says they all got their rear ends beat up, they got stripped naked, and they ran home naked. That's what happened. That's not, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen to you, but I'm just simply saying you don't want to somehow take matters of spiritual elements in and of your own power or your own authority because you have no authority except what's been given to you by God. But what Jesus does, he has these encounters with demonic hosts that are upon the scene trying to destroy and oppress, and that's what we see. So Jesus, uh, again, it says in verse uh, 23, it says, and immediately there's that word, uh, there was in a synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have, we to do with, uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out. I think it's interesting to note that demons have a very orthodox theological view of who Jesus is. It's very important to note that, because some of us are very confused about who Jesus is. Some of us don't know who Jesus is. Some of you are here, like the demoni, demoniac guy, meaning you don't know Jesus. You're at church, but you're still trying to figure things out. We're really happy you're here. We're stoked that you're here, actually. I love talking with people. Every week I talk to people that are here, and they're not Christians. We're glad you're here. I'm stoked that you're here. I pray that Jesus reveals himself to you. But the problem is, is that for most of us, maybe even for those that are Christians, you have false views of who Jesus is, meaning you think Jesus is your little sugar daddy. He gives you what you want. You pray to him, and he gives you what you want. You pray a lot, you go to church, you read your Bible, you do nice little things, and you are told somehow from someone that if you do it hard enough and you have enough faith, Jesus will give you exactly what you want. Well, you're going to be in for a very massive letdown because really at the end of the day, all you're simply doing is you're jury-rigging your life so that you're God, and he's not. He's your little pawn. He won't be your pawn. He refuses to be your, he refuses to be your little servant. He's not. Uh, the demons had a very clear orthodox view of who Jesus was, and this is one of the reasons why they scream out and screech out and say exactly who Jesus is. They identify him, and then Jesus rebukes him and says, Be silent and come out of him. And then clean spirit, convulsing him, crying out loud with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, and so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout uh, everywhere throughout all the th surrounding region of Galilee. Some people would look at this and think, ah, Jesus did an exorcism. Jesus did not do an exorcism. Oftentimes when we think of exorcism, we think of, you know, the movie Exorcist, where, you know, some guy walks around and uh, prays a bunch of prayers or maybe fasts and maybe walks around with the crucifix and, you know, starts commanding demons to do things. Jesus did not walk around with the crucifix. Jesus did not demand demons to do things. Jesus actually, in the story, there was no fanfare. There was no big group. Jesus didn't even have a white jacket on. He wasn't waving it. He wasn't yelling at somebody. Didn't hit him on the forehead. All Jesus did is simply command the demon, leave. And the demon left. Mark writes like that because he wants us to be amazed. This isn't Jesus trying to work his way in or try to make some sort of bargain or a deal with some sort of demonic power. But th this is the voice of an, a supreme authority that the moment he speaks, even demons listen. 
There's no negotiation going on. Jesus speaks, and it's done. Jesus speaks God's word, and it's accurate. Jesus says something, and it's finished. Mark does that because he wants us to begin to look at this and think, who is this? Who does this? Who speaks like this? Who has this type of authority? A demonic spirit or an unclean spirit, as some of your Bible translations might say, is really a spirit, something, some sort of presence that's inside of us, uh, inside of certain people, he would say, in particular in this case, a guy that was in the synagogue service that was literally taken. His will was, he was no longer free. He was bound. And the reason why these uh, spirits were bad was not because, in some translations might say unclean, because they hadn't you know, been washed or hadn't taken a shower or weren't somehow filthy, but the reason why they were unclean or bad is because they were invasive. These spirits were invasive, meaning they took away freedom. They restrained, they restricted, they destroyed, they oppressed, they bruised, they crushed, and they left somebody broken. One of the best ways to maybe identify this or paint a picture of this, if maybe some of you guys have seen the movie The Lord of the Rings or read the books, but Probably one of the most intriguing characters in the entire movie is actually the ring itself. It's the ring itself. And Tolkien writes the story kind of about this ring. And this ring is this beautiful thing. And when people see it, they're captivated by it. They're moved by it. And various people or various beings have different reactions according to this ring. For the kings of men, when the kings of men saw the ring, they were blown away by it, by its beauty, and captivated by it, and desired it, longed for it. But every time someone falls in love with this ring or desires this ring, what ends up happening is this ring actually ends up possessing them. It controls them. And what happens is this sort of disintegrating process where they start out being noble and powerful and mighty and great, but then after a while, the possession of the ring upon their soul begins to sort of deteriorate them and break them down uh, leaving them nothing more than a shadow of what they once were, like an empty husk. It's destructive. So the kings of men start out as powerful, mighty, but by being possessed by the ring, because they love the ring, they become transformed or deformed into what's called ring wraiths in the story. Or uh, maybe in the story, uh, the elves, uh, once these beautiful creatures, uh, those who were possessed by the ring or loved the ring were now possessed by it, they became orcs or deformed into these orcs and probably one character that most of you might be familiar with is uh, that guy Smeagol the Hobbit kind of a weird guy to begin with but fell in love with the ring was willing to murder someone as a result of it and through sort of this process of disintegration I just watched this a couple days ago and I don't know I think it might be the third one and uh, just see the sort of the disintegration of this guy Smeagol the Hobbit where he becomes broken down and destroyed in this sort of emaciated weird being with a weird voice and just grotesque looking it becomes transformed into Gollum just this emaciated form of what he once was and what Tolkien is trying to identify is that this is what happens when we as human beings submit ourselves to any other foreign authority than the authority of Jesus It controls us, destroys us, and leaves us in nothing more than a shadow or a former husk of what we once were. This becomes most obvious in addictions. I was watching a show not too long ago. I don't know if it was National Geographic. I think it was, actually. They did this whole show on the most addicting or the worst drug, you know, um, meth. And they, were just, they showed the before and action, uh, after pictures of people that started 
before they started using meth, and then literally three months for some people, for some six months later after using meth. It's absolutely crazy. They just went through this whole lineup of people that, and said how long they've been using it. Some people, three months. And it was unbelievable to look at the change of some of these people's faces prior to using meth, after using meth, just three months later. Some of them had lost all their teeth. Their faces had become sort of sunken in. You can see their cheekbones. They had completely lost all sorts of weight. They were completely different looking. Now, those are obvious ones that we can look at. But the bottom line, of the, the storyline of the Bible is this, is that all of us have these foreign oppressors that come in and they exercise authority over us. For some of you, it's pride. For some of you, it's beauty. Let me give you an example. Beauty is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But if you take beauty, something that's wonderful and glorious as beauty, and you make beauty an ultimate thing, it becomes the ultimate driving passion in your life. Sometimes that's what leads to the disintegration of eating disorders. It's a disintegration. You're controlled by beauty. You've got to be beautiful. And if you're not beautiful, you're nobody. So you will starve yourself. You will throw your food up. You will stop eating in rebellion so that you don't enter in, sink into your hell called ugliness. Power? It's another type of possession. It's another type of authority. If it controls us, people that are controlled by power become despots, become tyrants, become types of people that, for some, they turn into rapists, some pedophiles, some sex addictions. Some that take advantage of other people, they become violent. It's because you took something like power, which is not necessarily an evil thing. It's not. God's powerful. So power is not bad in and of itself. Power as an ultimate goal, as, as an in and of itself, is like the ring, and it begins to destroy you. The story of the Bible is that all of us have at some point in our lives been oppressed, destroyed by some foreign influence, some foreign authority has begun to control us. And if we have not found ourselves in the place of complete desolation and destruction, like a golem, some of you are there, some of you have been there, but the rest of us are in that process of going there. That's what the Bible is going to describe ultimately, this place of destruction and hell where unless something comes in and intervenes and rescues us from that, then we will ultimately be destroyed by it. That's what foreign authorities do. The story of Mark is that Jesus comes and he has power and authority to set people free. So we see that's what he seeks to do. But the way that Jesus does this, the way that Jesus is ultimately going to silence the oppressive authority of these demons that we see here in the storyline of Mark is that ultimately by the end of the story of Mark, Jesus will voluntarily allow himself to be silenced. Jesus will be silenced. And that will be the means by which Jesus will silence the demons. He will be killed. He will be crushed. He will allow all of the religious craziness and misinterpretations of the law due to Jesus what their false teachings and oppressive religion would do to him. They would crush him and destroy him. The final type of authority that Mark wants us to see about Jesus is that he also has reviving authority. And this picks it up about verse 29 to the end of the little section that we'll be taking a look at is on verse 35. He says this, And immediately he left the synagogue. So Jesus, you saw in the synagogue area, goes across the street, and it says that he entered into the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Again, all of these guys were residents of that region of 
uh, Capernaum, and uh, they had done their family business there. They lived there. This is the area where Jesus is going to do a lot of ministry, a lot of street evangelism, a lot of street preaching, a lot of street healings. People are going to gather around Jesus. But it seemed as if a lot of ministry started off in Simon's home. And as the church was birthed, after Jesus died, rose again from the dead, um, and after the church sort of moved from Jerusalem, um, one of the number one areas that Christianity started to grow, a lot of archaeologists have, have discovered, is actually in this very house, Simon's house, Simon Peter's house, where actually Christianity, if you want to look at it this way, started off as a small community group. A group of people who love God, who serve God, who pray together, who sought God together. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you guys, study together, be in community groups together. We encourage you to consider that. We've got lots of community groups to get involved in. If you're not involved in one, what we encourage you to do is just start one up yourself. Grab some people that you know. Start meeting together, meeting in homes, having a meal together, talking about God together, praying with each other, serving one another, caring for one another, getting to God's word together. That's what happened in Peter's house. And it says... Immediately after they left the synagogue, they entered into Simon and Andrew and James and John, the house of Simon. In verse 30, it says, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Again, not a lot of fanfare. Jesus, no hocus-pocus. There's no magic going on, no incantations. Jesus isn't doing anything weird or freaky or spooky. All Jesus does is he reaches out his hand grabs the hand of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, lifts her up, which, by the way, as a side note, if you have mother-in-law, just FYI, that implies you also have a wife. So if that's the case, I was brought up Catholic, Roman Catholic, and I was taught that uh, Peter was the first pope, and I had priests that did not have wives. I was told growing up that you weren't allowed to get married because popes don't get married. But the ironic thing is Peter, actually the very first supposed pope, which I don't think he was, was married. Again, mother-in-law implies wife. And so here's Peter in this house with his mother-in-law. She's sick. We have no idea what she's sick with, but apparently it was bad enough to the point where they went and grabbed Jesus and said, Jesus, would you intervene and help out? Jesus comes to the scene, lifts out his hand, raises Peter's mother-in-law up and implies some sort of miracle actually happening. So again, it causes people to ask the question, who is this? Because that's basically what's going on here. And it says in verse 31, and he came home, took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. The whole city had gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So what happens is immediately following this miracle of Jesus raising uh, Peter's mother-in-law up from this uh, death or this sickliness type thing, perhaps leading to death, we don't really know, she immediately rises and begins to serve. So I think this is significant. What Mark is trying to, I think, subtly tell us is that the aim, the goal of Jesus' redemption, of Jesus' salvation is not just so that you can sit at home and feel really good about the fact that you're forgiven. It's not the aim. The goal is not to just simply say as an ultimate end in of itself, I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven, and that's it. That really, the point of the matter is that those that are cleansed, those that are redeemed, those that are set free now are free to serve God, free to serve others. If you were once bound by money, and that was your God, that was the foreign oppressor that exercised dominion over you, 
that mounted you up, that mounted upon you like debt and just crushed you. Anytime you thought about giving money away, being kind to the poor, it crushed you. It made you feel destroyed because you didn't have the freedom, the liberty, meaning you were or you were oppressed. Those that are free now are free indeed to serve, to give, to love, to be generous with everything they have. That's what Peter's mother-in-law does. She rises and begins to serve. I think the storyline is this, that those that are free by Jesus from foreign oppressors, from foreign authorities that crush and destroy and ruin your lives are now free to serve Jesus with all their heart by serving those whom he loves. That's the storyline of the Bible. We're free to be generous with our money. We're free to give our time away. We're free to help people that are marginalized and hurting and broken because in reality, that's who we were. We were marginalized. We were hurting. We were broken. This is why what we do in this world actually matters. This is why giving cups of cold water to people that are in need. This is why helping the oppressed, trying to be about the slave trade, the sex slave trade, by helping, by providing shoeboxes to send across the ocean actually matters. Anything we do in the name of Jesus actually matters. It's helping to push back the darkness to help alleviate souls, to point them to Jesus who ultimately will set them free. This is what the whole early church is all about. This is what we want to be about as a church. But the point that really I think Mark wants for us to understand and see clearly in this whole storyline is that the way that Jesus is going to do this, the way that Jesus will flex his authority, again, back into the question of the story in the movie Grand Trino. It's kind of, again, the question. Tao and Sue, or the statement, Tao and Sue are never going to find peace in this world as long as these gangs are around. That's almost the same issue that Mark's bringing up. People in Galilee, the people in Israel, the people in Judea, the people in this world will never find freedom as long as these invasive foreign authorities are around. So Mark wants us to ask the question, how? How are these foreign authorities that are oppressive and afflicting, and crushing, how will they be destroyed? Ironically, Mark takes us on the whole journey. And what Mark's going to show us is that the way that Jesus will set us free is that Jesus, who is the only true authority, is the only true free being who has authority in all the universe, comes and voluntarily lays his authority down. Not to crush, but to be crushed. Not to afflict, but to be afflicted. Not to shed blood, but to have his blood shed. So that those of us who are afflicted and crushed and broken and destroyed can find freedom. That's the good news. Free. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't ask God to set us free. Israel didn't beg to somehow be right. God did this out of grace, out of kindness. This is why Paul in the New Testament says, by grace you're saved, meaning God in his overflowing abundance of kindness who loved you came to rescue you. Some of you are like, you're still not convinced. You're like, I don't have any foreign oppressors. I'm an authority to myself. Well, let me ask you, okay? Let's just deal with that. Let me ask you. How good of an authority are you to yourself? What about, how good do you do at governing your life? How strict are you? When you fail, how forgiving are you of yourself? 
We're horrible gods. We oppress ourselves. You can't say, I'm an authority myself. You're a horrible authority over yourself. You can't govern yourself perfectly. And when you fail to govern yourself perfectly, you don't let yourself go. You refuse to forgive yourself. You're, you're harsher with yourself than others are harsh with you. You're a horrible God. We're not meant to be gods. We can't be gods. We all have this. This is the problem with the world. We have these foreign authorities that are vying to woo us to come to them. They're flashing the gold in front of us, trying to get us to buy it. And the moment, just like the ring, we put it on us, we think we feel invincible for a season. And then begins the disintegrating process. But Jesus comes, and he's the only authority that when you fail him, he forgives you. He doesn't afflict you. He was afflicted for you. He doesn't crush you. He was crushed for you. He doesn't spill your blood. He laid and spilled his blood down. He doesn't take your life. He gives you life. He doesn't steal your character. He gives you your character. He doesn't steal your creativity. He gifts to you your creativity. He's the only God, the only ruler, the only authority that can do that. And he does it free. I'm going to have Trav come on up. We're going to sing some songs of worship. But what I want to do right now, I realize that for some of us, that's, that's you, man. Like you, there's things in your life. There's these foreign authorities that are crushing, afflicting, pressing down, destroying you. It might be debt. It might be physical ailments. And there's no guarantee. Let me just say something real quick about physical healing. Every physical healing that God ever did throughout in Jesus' life was intended, I believe, to be like a trailer or a sampling of the final resurrection. You say, well, how do you know that for sure? I know that for sure because every one of them died. Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? He's not around anymore. He's, he's dead. Like, he died again. You're like, that was an awesome miracle. Yeah, but it had an expiration date. You're like, I got healed from a broken limb. All right, it's got an expiration date. I mean, you're going to die at some point. But every healing that Jesus ever did was always intended to point to the final healing. What you see here and what we saw here in the text here, these were border skirmishes pointing to the final battle in which Jesus himself would take upon the forces of wickedness and evil that oppress every one of us by himself being oppressed. Like Clint Eastwood at the end of the story, I'm going to break it to you right now, goes out and you're wondering, is he going to shoot them with a gun? He reaches into his coat pocket, leaves everybody hanging. The gang comes out, shoots him dead. He dies, falls on the ground. And someone says, I think he was about to shoot. And someone searches his coat and finds there's no gun on him. He had no gun in his possession. He went there because he knew in order to deal with the gangs, to get rid of the suppressive power, he had to get them thrown in jail. He knew if he shot them, his, it would be limited. But if he can get them thrown away into jail for killing him, he would do away with the wickedness and the evil and the oppression forever. That's what Jesus did for us. He was crushed so that we who are crushed can be set free. 
Some of you right now are crushed, afflicted, crushed down, destroyed, and you need to be set free. Um, no fanfare. If that's you, why don't you stand up right where you're at. Crushed, afflicted, broken. There's foreign oppressors in your life right now. They're crushing you. Stand up right where you're at. I just want to pray for you. This is always hard. It's kind of freaky. You're like, oh, I got to stand up. Thank you. It's hard sometimes because fears can crush us. Debt can crush us. Sickness is an oppressor. Maybe Jesus wants to heal you today. I don't know. Maybe he does. We'll pray for you, though. I can't guarantee you'll get healed. Maybe Jesus might heal you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're afraid of some sickness you have. And that fear is a crushing weight on you. It's crushing you. It's oppressing you. It's not giving you life. And you're afraid. You need to be set free from that. Jesus wants to free you from that. And the freedom that Jesus offers, he says, you don't need to be afraid because I face the greatest fear on the cross so that you who face these minor fears, these little border skirmishes, don't have to be afraid. I conquered death for you. Anybody at all, anybody else, you're struggling, you're oppressed, you're crushed, you're afflicted. Stand where you're at. All I want to do is we're going to have some people pray for you. Let's, uh, let's turn out the lights, man. Let's, um, let's turn this down. And I know it's kind of hard. It's kind of weird sometimes. You're like, oh, I don't want to stand up. But you know, at the end of the day, we have a God here that really loves you, really wants to set you free. And the greatest demonstration of his love was that he died on the cross for you. He was bound. The one who is boundless was bound, so you who are bound can be set free. It's a good God. Anybody else? I feel like you just need freedom. Some sort of oppression, some sort of fear, some sort of affliction, foreign authority that you've given yourself to. Maybe you gave yourself to it voluntarily and now it's crushing you. And you want to be set free from it. One more second. Anybody else? Just stand up where you're at. I want to do a prayer for you. Cool. Here's what I want to do. Um, those of you that are sitting around, these people that are standing, if you can do me a favor and just go lay hands on them right now and pray for them. Just pray out loud and pray specifically. Maybe you can ask them. If you don't want to share, that's fine. Um, you don't need to share. Maybe some of you may want to. And uh, just tell someone and, and they can start praying. So start praying for them right now. Um, the rest of you, um, we're going to worship. We're going to sing. I encourage you. Maybe just pray for pray for yourselves. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're dealing with this stuff and you just didn't want to stand. That's fine. I get it. Um, maybe you can pray for those that are oppressed. But let's, let's get our hearts ready. Let's focus on Jesus. We've got a lot to celebrate because God's here and loves us. So go ahead and pray out loud. We'll give you a minute and I'm going to pray over all of us and then we're just going to sing. So go ahead and pray out loud. Pray for your people that you're praying for.